You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Aloha, I'm Doug Nordman. This is Carol Pittner. I'm J.L. Collins. Hey, this is Jessica Collins, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. My parents were savvy financially. They own their own businesses, real estate, and investment portfolio. They saved greater than 50% of their income, and we lived pretty darn well. But they didn't teach me about money, per se. We didn't discuss it at the dinner table, nor did they sit me down to talk about wealth. Instead, they just lived their lives while I watched intently. They modeled wise financial behavior, and I, as an adult, followed suit. And so did the rest of my siblings to varying degrees of success. But what if we hadn't? Would my parents have been able to steer us in the appropriate direction to right the course? Can parents convince an unwieldy child about money? Can a loving friend, a mentor, an acquaintance, even when that person is not ready to hear it? Are you looking to elevate your asset allocation, guard your portfolio against volatility? Equity Multiple can help. Invest in professionally managed commercial real estate starting with just $5,000. Establish passive income streams while experienced asset managers go to work on your behalf. Sign up at equitymultiple.com forward slash earn and receive an enhanced return on your first investment. Again, that's equitymultiple.com forward slash earn. Jail Collins is widely known as the godfather of the financial independence movement, and his book, The Simple Path to Wealth, was largely based on the financial advice he wished to impart on his daughter, Jessica. Doug Nordman is the author of The Military Guide to Financial Independence and Retirement and founder of TheMilitaryGuide.com. In 2020, he published a second book, Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence with his daughter, Carol Pittner. Jail, Jessica, Doug, and Carol, welcome to Earn and Invest. Jessica, let me start with you. Is it true that J.L. Collins being known as the financial independence godfather, nor his celebrated book, The Simple Path to Wealth, would have come to be if not for you? 100% true. I am the reason that the blog and the book came to this world. Your intransigence is the reason. (laughs) My willingness to not listen as a four-year-old at the dinner table to learn the definitions dividends is the reason. Dale, four years old? Come on, that sounds a little young. Yeah, <laughs> yeah correct. It is young. Well, I, well I, I would have at one point said it's never too young to start, but pretty clearly I'm wrong about that. 
So, <laughs> Jail, talk about the frustration a little bit. Here you are, you've accrued all of this financial knowledge over many years. What did it feel like to think maybe my daughter just isn't ready to hear it yet? Well, that felt terrifying. I mean, the, the, and not that she wasn't ready to hear it yet, but that she might not ever be willing to hear it at all. And like I suspect almost every parent, you know, I wanted the very best for my child. And my life experience taught me that if you understand money, life is, is much, much easier. And if you don't understand money, life is extraordinarily hard. That's actually a, almost a quote from uh, Christy Shen. And, but it, when, I, when, I read, when I read that in, in her writings, it just resonated with me. And of course, I, I probably pushed it too hard too soon simply because I, I realized how important it was f- for Jessica's life. Because if you get the money part right, then life has far more opportunities in this modern world for you that are laid at your feet. It's far easier. You far, spend far less time worrying about how to pay the rent, and you can have more time worrying about how to spend your time. And so I think because I, I see it as being so critically important, I pretty clearly pushed it a little bit too hard. Jessica, do you remember what was going through your mind at the time? I mean, obviously, this started pretty young. Do you remember what you were thinking? I mean, the answer to that question probably changes on the age that I was. I mean, when I was four, I <laughs> it was going, I mean, I think it's hard to understand the purpose and the why when you are so young. So on the one hand, probably got it. And this is half in jest, but also half in truth. I was like, well, I got to get it. Cause he's going to ask me the same question next month as a pop quiz. <laughs> and I want this to be as short of a conversation as possible. So let's get in and out. Um, and I want my quarter, but I, you know, as a four-year-old, I think I thought very differently about it. And then as I grow older, you know, when you're a child, an adolescent, a teenager, and even a young adult, you're in your own world. So I was just always very confused as to like, why are you drilling this in my brain? Because everybody does this. That was the part that never clicked for me until I was a full adult that, oh, this is not common knowledge. This is not the common way of engaging with your finances. Doug, I feel like you and Jail started at the same place. Did it ever occur to you that maybe Carol just wouldn't be receptive? It it wasn't so much about that. You always worry about that. As a parent, you're always worried that all of those things are going to go bad. But it wasn't so much that we felt like she needed to get a handle on understanding money as it was that she was always on, always bright, eager, alert, asking questions. Uh, and frankly, we were sleep deprived chronically. Not that I'm bitter, but okay, maybe a little bitter. But the whole idea behind her financial education might have started with my spouse and I just projecting some of our fears, some of our concerns about finances onto her. Things that we messed up when we were young adults or even kids, we wanted to make sure we got right for this generation. And and we joke about revenge parenting, where you want to raise your kid better than you were raised by your parents. Some of that was going on. And the other aspect of it was that if we could come up with a financial technique to improve her behavior, 
we knew that that motivated us as adults. So if Carol got to behave and then got to buy one special thing at the grocery store, that was winning. And that was a powerful motivator that really solved a lot of problems for us. Carol, as a kid, do you remember thinking about this and buying into what your parents were selling? I mean, I think they came at you with a very specific idea of money and how to use it. Did you buy into it at the beginning? Not the way that parents would want you to buy in. It never, uh, parents come in thinking it's going to go one way. And the reality is it's really going to go the way the kid wants it to. And, and, and it happens every single time. You know, I'm a parent to a, a just turned two-year-old and I'm seeing it every day now. I think it's going to go one way and she takes it in a completely different direction. And so what I appreciated about the one special thing, what I appreciate about having an allowance early in age was that that was some means that I got to control. Mom and dad would set the terms. It was one thing. Okay, I got to pick one thing. Or it was a certain amount. Okay, I only get $5. But after that, I got to make all the choices I wanted. So that one special thing, it could be like a Lunchable. It could be like a little pack of Pokemon cards. It could be some little thing that made me happy. But it also made my parents happy because that was owning up to a promise that I had met. Same thing with an allowance. It was $5, which is not much to an adult nowadays, but to a kid. Oh, that's a lot of money. I mean, that's that's how many ice cream cones, that's how many dollar store treats, that's how many. I don't think it's worth a pack of Pokemon cards anymore. But back in my day, $5 is <laughs> enough to buy you Pokemon cards. <laughs> yes, the Pokemon inflation index is quite extensive. <laughs> Dale, let's go back to that time. You're meeting initial resistance. Did you try to change your tactics? Like, what did you do when you realized, okay, this is not going to be an easy sale? Yeah. <laughs> That's an embarrassing question because the, the truth is I probably didn't try to change my tactics. I probably just took the tactics that weren't working and intensified them. I, I wish I'd had Doug and Carol's book in hand uh, to read through as I was uh, as I was going through the process. Jessica, it's an interesting question. I mean, looking back, was there something your dad could have said or done differently that would have made you interested at the time? Or was it just not something you cared about? I hesitate with that answer because again, I think it, it would look differently depending on the age we're talking about. I think the best thing my parents did to drill this into my brain was acting on what they were preaching. So there was a lot, all the details that maybe came into my life a little too early, you know, as a four-year-old could have come into my life later and would have still had the same impact. So long as my whole life, I was still witnessing these behaviors of living below your means, being really thoughtful and intentional with what you're doing and what you're spending your money on. So I don't, I don't know there's anything that could have been different or changed other than just the timeline of what was done when, but keep the same things that were being brought into my life. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about something. And, and how did you know that we were living below our means? How are you aware of what our means were and, and where, I mean, we always had a very comfortable lifestyle. So how did you, how did you know we could have had a more extravagant one than we did? I mean, as a seven-year-old, I probably couldn't have articulated it in these terms, but there's something in your brain that says when you see your peers and they all have five cars 
and everybody's got a TV in their bedroom or X, Y, Z, you know, fill in the material objects as you want. And then I look at us and I have vast memories of it being very much an ebb and flow. Sometimes we had two cars, depending on what you and mom were doing. And there was also a good chunk of my childhood where we only had one because that's just what made sense. Right. And sometimes there was, you had a motorcycle. And I think nobody was explaining this to me verbally, but there is just something, there's something to be said about observing and observing what's going on. And again, you can't articulate it as a child, but you just know that that's, this is what we're talking about. Even if we're not, it's not being said to you. For me, I, I noticed that show and tell didn't just stop in the classroom. Kids were always eager to, to show off their stuff outside the classroom, even if it wasn't theirs. They were always eager to say, you know, my mom just bought this brand new Lexus. You know, my dad just took out this cool motorcycle. You know, my older brother just got this whatever. And so it, it never really stopped. It was there was some level of comparison just by being a kid and going to school with other kids and hearing about all the other things that either they had in their lives or their relatives had in their lives. Doug, I think I know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Was there pressure to be like the other parents? There, there was a certain amount of question and answer that you had to go through when your child comes home and says, so-and-so has a, a Game Boy and I don't. What are we going to do to fix this problem? And we would talk about the choices that we made in spending our money. And we would say, well, if you want a Game Boy, then if that's important to you, you're going to save your allowance, you're going to work a job, you're going to make it a goal and, and figure out how to get there, and we can help you do that. But mom and I, we don't care about buying Game Boys, and we'd rather spend our money on other things. And then we talk about choices and how you make a lot of choices in your life and where the money goes and how much time do you want to spend working for things how much life energy do you want to devote to uh, trading your time for more money? So at some point, I'm pretty sure that Carol knew that if she came home and started expressing some consumer desire, that she'd find herself trapped in one of those dad conversations where you had to chew your arm off to get away and go play <laughs> with your friends again. So that's part of it is just making sure that you can keep up and outlast the, the question that your child wants you to answer for them and, and you know, to, essentially to buy them stuff. And we'd say, well, that's a great idea. All you need now is to figure out the plan and how you're going to get that. I do remember one day, uh, Carol, you were probably 10, 12, maybe 13 years old. And you looked over my shoulder as I was working on the computer on Quicken. And I was doing something with our, our assets and you saw our net worth. And your expression, your, your question was, holy cow, we're rich. That's a lot of money. And, and then I started putting that into the perspective of living for another 70 years. And suddenly it didn't look like very much money at all. And again, that was one of those opportunities where you were ready to hear the answer, but it wasn't the answer that you thought you were going to hear. Jessica, did you ever have one of those moments where you said, oh, mom and dad actually have money? Like, like yeah, there's something here. I don't think so. A lot of our discussions were very much privy around what is mine. I think that was always the big, the bigger focus, or maybe I'm misremembering dad. I don't know if you are remembering something, but what's sticking in my brain is that it was very much like, this is the amount of money that Jessica has. And Jessica has this money because of X, you know, insert 
job here, or maybe it was the allowance. And if we divide Jessica's money into these buckets, I had envelopes growing up that we would put it in. It's still all Jessica's money. That's, that's my bigger memory when we're thinking about wealth. Two things. There were two material things that, that I remember from your childhood. One is uh, when, when you were a child, cell phones were, as I recall, were a relatively new thing, at least for children. And I forget what age you were when you asked for a cell phone or we gave you one. But you were, you were one of the first of your peers to get one. And I don't think I actually knew that at the time, but I remember, I don't I want to say you were 10, 11, something like that. And I remember being struck at how excited you were to have this phone. And in fact, I remember talking to a friend of mine and, and saying, you know, it's, it's, it's stunning to me how excited she is to have this silly little phone. And he looked at me like, like, like I was the stupidest person on the planet. He's, <laughs> She's a preteen girl with a phone. Of course, she's excited. Mm. And then the other material thing that I remember is when you were 15, coming up on 16, you mounted a major campaign to get me to buy you a car. And I remember at one point you gave a presentation. You tried multiple times. And I was very impressed with the effort. You even took me to lunch one day and, <laughs> and, and put on this great presentation. I remember thinking, man, this is really persuasive. And as you may or may not recall at the end, I said, you know, Jessica, if you really wanted a car, you made one critical mistake and you were very concerned. And you said, well, what's that? And I said, well, you picked the wrong father because <laughs> I am never going to buy you a car. And you said, but dad, all of my friends are getting cars on their 16th birthday, which I'm sure was true given the neighborhood we lived in. And my response was, well, then you won't have any problem getting rides. But the one thing, and I don't know if you remember this, I'd be curious, that we always spent money on was travel. And not just travel as a family, but when you had the opportunity with people to people, and uh, there were a couple of other organizations even when I thought they were a bit of a ripoff, we always spent the money on, on travel because we valued that. And you valued that. That was what you wanted. You never came to us wanting designer clothes, for instance. But you came to us frequently with these trips, and we always said yes to those. And I frequently wondered what a different experience it would have been if you happened to be one of those kids who was into designer clothes. Fortunately, from our point of view, you were into something that we also valued, which was the travel. So it was easy to say yes to. Doug, I'm wondering, as you listen to this as the part of the duo who wrote the book on bringing up financially savvy kids, what do you tell people in kind of jail's position? So he obviously has these kind of strong financial ideas, at least the way he's introducing them to his daughter at the time wasn't working is it time to pack it up? Like, what do you do in that situation? Well, the, the answer to anything you try that doesn't work right then with a kid is if they still want to talk about it, you talk about feelings and choices and decisions. But if they're totally resistant and busy with something else that's a higher priority, wait six months. And when you wait six months and come back, you may find out that what you thought was a problem six months ago is not a problem anymore. Maybe your child will come back and say, hey, I wanted to talk about this again anyhow. So it's mostly 
the old saying that when the student is finally ready, the teacher has been waiting there patiently the whole time, tapping their foot and hoping to have this conversation. And I'll also point out that when JL talks about cell phones for kids, we didn't have anything to do with that decision. We as parents, as military parents, did not like phones. We didn't like any communication system that could wake you up in the middle of the night to tell you that you had to get up and go to work. And so when cell phones came out, we saw that as just one more way for technology to ruin our lives. And it wasn't until Carol got her 14-year-old work permit and her very first W-2 job and her very first paycheck and went out and bought her own darn cell phone because her parents were so slow to understand how this works. That's when we appreciated what a wonderful tool this was for school groups and social networking and not being left out of the teachers after school discussions. And that is the only way that we ever figured out the cell phone question. The same discussion was coming up, we could see way in advance for getting a car. And again, we wanted, we knew this conversation was going to happen at age 16. And we were just like that when we were teenagers. So we tried to see that one coming and anticipate it. We did a much better job with the car discussion than we did with the cell phone. Meanwhile, all my friends. <laughs> Meanwhile, all my friends, and, and it's exactly what Jessica was describing, at about age 10 or 11, someone got the cell phone. Sometimes it was initiated by the child. Sometimes it was initiated by the parent. It usually involves some kind of after-school thing, like, I need you to call me when you get out of school so we can go to the soccer thing. Or, you know, you haven't been coming uh, home on time, and I don't know where you are, and I'm concerned about your well-being, so I'm giving you a cell phone. And, and so at first, it was really for, to some degree, a relationship extender between the parent and the child. But as more of us kids got cell phones, well, then I started feeling left out because all of a sudden now all my friends were communicating with each other by cell phone and and everybody would in the middle of the day, call my parents at home on the landline because I was in school and they thought I had a cell phone, not realizing that was my home phone number instead. (laughs) We got a lot of phone calls. And when Carol went out and got her own darn cell phone, suddenly all of our phone calls on our landline stopped just, just like it stopped. It was like two days later, we realized the house was silent. So Jessica, what I'm hearing is that parents attempt or try to teach the kids, but in a way too, the kids are teaching the parents about how times are changes and changing and what the finances mean to them. Doug mentioned this idea that, you know, if it doesn't go over well, you wait six months and then you kind of slowly bring it back. Obviously, you did something to your dad because he went and had to start a blog and then eventually wrote, you know, one of the best financial books out there. But when did the tide turn for you? What was that point when you got to an age where you're like, okay, now I'm ready to start hearing some of these lessons? So the funny thing about that is when that moment happened to me, it had nothing to do with my dad. (laughs) I was a senior in college. So yes, I was 21. I was very much an adult and I lived with a group of girlfriends and we had, you know, we were off campus. So we, there was a big group of us that was always hanging out and talking and it's our last semester. And we're thinking as almost graduates of college do what's coming up next. What are we doing? And I remember one girlfriend making a comment about how she's going to have to pay off student loan debt for the rest of her life. And some numbers were involved. 
And I remember quickly doing the math in my brain. And because everybody was very open about debt, you know, money is taboo, but everybody loves to talk about debt. So everyone was super open about the amount of debt that they were going to have after college. And I knew in my brain, I was like, well, the amount of debt that you you have, debt is still debt. I don't want to say that I don't want to say that it's not something to focus on, but it was a much smaller amount than other people I knew. And you're telling me that you're going to be paying this off the rest of your life. Like this math isn't working for me. How, how are you coming to that conclusion? Oh, well, because I can only pay X amount per month. Again, help me understand how you're getting to that number because I know what you're majoring and I know the job prospects on the horizon and I know it's only going to go up from here. You're only 21. How is that what you're married to? And then it becomes the conversation of, well, I have to make sure that I move here when I graduate college and I have no other option. Like it has to be here, right? Their list of must-haves is just huge and I have to have a car and all this. By the way, it's fine. Spend your money how you want. But that was the conversation that has always stuck with me that it was, oh, this is, people don't think about money that I think of. And that was also the learning point for me of realizing that this is how I think about money. Like, so it was a learning point of this is my belief and this is not everybody else's belief as well. I think for Carol, it was in high school during the Great Recession when she started seeing all the stress of her classmates. And it wasn't that her classmates were worried about paying off debt or worried about their jobs as a teenager. It was that they were looking at their parents who were laid off or drowning in mortgage debt and other consumer debt. And I think that's when stuff got real for you was seeing what was going on around you during that time of your life and realizing that your parents were nowhere near that worried at all. And, and that was just one aspect of it. The other big aspect was that it wasn't just my peers who were affected by either their own home life or their parents or whoever else. It was also the teachers. There were a number of teachers that got to the end of their, they were at, you know, 25 years of teaching, 28 years of teaching, 32 years of teaching, 36 years of teaching. And here came this recession and, and there went all their plans. And so it was, it was the, it was bookended because I could see the kids at the beginning who hadn't even started college yet. And I could see the folks at the very end after they'd done, you know, decades and decades of, of working. And, and it was like they were very different circumstances, but the exact same situation. And, and it was such a, it was such an eye opener. Dale, I love this conversation because what both Carol and Jessica are talking about are those moments when they realize that maybe their dads weren't as, as dumb as they thought. Tell me, Jail, what did it feel like for you when all of a sudden it clicked and you're like, okay, Jessica actually gets this. And although it was a little rough in the beginning, she's starting to embrace these ideas. Oh, it's the skies parted and, and, <laughs> and, and the trumpets were blaring. And my wife, Jane, I, I, when Jessica was growing up, I was very concerned at her lack of interest, you know, and we started very young. So there's a lot, lot a great number of years where I was very concerned about this. My wife, Jane, her mother kept saying to me, you know, she's, she's absorbing more than you realize, and it's going to be okay. And in my mind, it's like, well, yeah, but I don't see that, or it's not enough, or what have you. So when really when she was in college and then as a young adult was when I really began to see the pieces falling in place for her. It was just such a huge, huge relief. 
We are talking to Doug Nordman and Carol Pittner. They are the father-daughter duo responsible for the book, Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence, as well as J.L. Collins and his daughter, Jessica. Little known, Jessica is probably the reason he started his blog and wrote his book, The Simple Path to Wealth. We are going to take a short break. I'm Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest podcast. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor. And it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner, and now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Over 30,000 investors across the U.S. are discovering a new way to build wealth. Equity Multiple brings you access to a diverse wealth generation ecosystem with cash-flowing real estate. Starting with just $5,000, you can allocate to professionally manage commercial real estate assets. Sign up in minutes, find investments that fit your strategy, and invest your desired amount through a streamlined, secured platform. Since 2015, Equity Multiple has delivered over $170 million in distributions to investors and 17.4% aggregate net return. Join the thousands of investors nationwide who are building stronger, more diversified portfolios through real estate investing. Sign up at equitymultiple.com forward slash earn and receive an enhanced return on your first investments. All investments involve risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. Again, that is equitymultiple.com forward slash earn. We are talking to Doug Nordman and Carol Pittner. They are the father-daughter duo responsible for the book, Raising Your Money Savvy Family for Next Generation Financial Independence, as well as J.L. Collins, who is the author of The Simple Path to Wealth, and his daughter, Jessica Collins. And we are talking about teaching our children about finances. But more than that, I wanted to broaden the conversation to discuss having financial conversations in general. J.L., your 
major attempt at teaching finances to your daughter obviously has affected the way you write about personal finance and the way you wrote your book. Did it give you some insights on teaching people about finances in general? I mean, when you're out there and you're dealing with the public, were the things you learned by dealing with your daughter that made you more effective with the general public? I don't think so. I, I you know, I, but I think one of the keys to the success of my blog and my book from what people have told me is that the advice is so specific. And I tell them the reason it's specific is I've written this for one person. And I frequently said, there's only one person I've ever tried to persuade about this stuff. And, and that's Jessica. And you alluded to the fact earlier that, that she is the reason that the blog and the book and the Chautauquas exist. And she and I joke about that, but that's the absolute truth. I mean, if, the moment I sat her down at four years old, she said, wow, the Wall Street Journal, let's dig into this, Dad. <laughs> None of this other stuff would exist, right? But that that's why, you know, why it has existed. And I think that I get credit for a certain amount of authenticity because of this, that I never intended. It was not a strategy when I was putting my blog or my book together. But because I can genuinely say, this is what I tell my daughter to do. And I think people relate to it and say, well, obviously parents give their children the best advice that they're capable of giving them. At least I certainly that's true with with what I've done in the financial stuff. So I think because I've never tried to persuade anybody, that probably has made my work more persuasive than than others. I had uh, my interview, Rachel, who was a woman who interviewed me for my Google talk, asked a very provocative question at one point. She said, why is it that other financial writers don't give as specific advice as you do? And I said, well, I can't speak for them, but I can tell you that the reason my advice is so specific is it's... It's aimed at, at, at one very specific person. And then by the same corollary, there are sometimes people who want to fight with me about my advice, and I'm just disinterested because I don't care about persuading anybody. So my response to that is, well, you do you. If you want to know what I think about this stuff, I've, I've written a book and I've written a blog and I've expressed it as clearly as I am capable of doing. And if it resonates for you, that's wonderful. You know, I think that's great. But if it doesn't, I don't care. I don't mean to sound brutal, but I just don't care because my mission has been accomplished. I persuaded the one person I wanted to persuade. Doug, talk about the difference between persuading or teaching your daughter and then teaching people in general, because in the military guide, et cetera, you obviously have expanded your audience quite a bit. Does it feel different when you're teaching people who are not family members specifically? It uh, feels pretty much the same as it always has. Uh, when I was on active duty, you would get questions all the time about what to do, or I was teaching at training commands and we would hand out information and people were ready to learn. You'd occasionally get somebody who wasn't ready or wasn't interested. And I've developed a fairly thick skin over the years of, of writing and discussing these topics. And so I know that if I'm putting some information out there and somebody isn't interested or isn't ready to hear it, that's fine. But the information's out there and someday you'll learn. And I make it a point when I have a seminar or a conversation with an audience to skip the PowerPoint. If I can get away with not having to do a screen presentation, I'll, I'll stop doing that. And instead, I'll hand out 
papers to the crowd with contact information and bullets on them so that they don't have to take notes. If they're not interested, they can play with their phone or take a nap. But someday when they hit rock bottom, they can go back to that piece of paper and say, oh, yeah, that's what he was trying to say. Let me go contact him. I've also been doing this for long enough that now people actually do come back and say, you might not remember me, but I was that person who didn't want to listen to you 15 years ago. And now I have a few questions. Carol, it's an important question because we clearly in our lives, whether it be family members or friends or what have you, often see people who are in financial distress. Should we be attempting to teach them when they're not ready to hear the message? I mean, is it still helpful for us to try to advise them? Directly advise? Absolutely no. At that point, when you have somebody in your life that is in need of help, part of it is they need to reach out to you to to request your help. I have seen attempts in the past where people will try to help a friend and in some way almost guide them by a lead rope. And it doesn't end very well. It the the best way that you can help somebody is to be there for them. And and it has to be a constant, repetitive, I'm there for you if you need me, I'm there for you if you need me. How about this? Would you like me to help you? What about this? I can help you there, but I'm there if you need me. And, and it really has to be a, a, a meeting at halfway. Because if you try to help somebody and they're just not ready for the help, they're going to drive you even further away and you're going to have even less of a position of power to help. And I I found that when you hear those stories or when it becomes clear that there's a financial problem, that uh, the best thing to do is to empathize, even sympathize. You know, oh, I hate when that happens or, ooh, that really set me back a couple of years when that happened to me. And not immediately go into problem solving mode, but just talk about the situation and vent and share some emotions. And maybe later on, they'll be willing to actually talk about how to fix the problem, how to move on from it. At least they know that they've got a sympathetic audience that they can go talk to without worrying about criticism or judgment. Jessica, let's talk about role modeling, because we obviously we make fun of JL and say that he wrote the book in the blog because you weren't ready to listen to him. But clearly, you might not have been ready to listen to his teaching specifically to you about money. But it sounds like you were kind of watching what he and your mom were doing this whole time. It it sounds like when you were ready to start accepting these things, the modeling they did provided you with some templates. Do you think the actual didactic teaching, the sitting down and telling a child is as important as showing them the right way to do it? I think you need both. I think young Jessica would be shocked that adult Jessica is saying that, but you need (laughs) both, right? Because the, the teachings give you the why and the behind the scenes, whereas the actions kind of show you what could be. So when I was ready to accept it or when my brain was ready to put two and two together and connect those dots. I don't know that it would have been as easy or it would have made sense when I was ready had I not had both. I'm watching them act and live their life in a certain way. And I want to do that. And I know what I enjoy and what makes me happy. And I also understand that these are the skills and these are the tools essentially that I've been hearing about since I was four. And if I keep doing these, I get to live this life that I want. Whereas if it had just been watching and not understanding the, how do you get there? I think that would have been an even more confusing situation. Jail, looking back, 
what would you have done different? And I ask that specifically because there are probably a lot of wonderful, caring parents out there right now who are facing very similar issues, right? A child who just doesn't, isn't ready to talk about the finances. What do you do? Like, what could you have done differently? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I, I, I think a, a good start is, is uh, Carol and Doug's book. But we're we're all temperamentally the way we are, right? And I I'm I think reading that book may have helped, but my approach probably would have still fundamentally been the same. Just because, as I said earlier, I think it's such an important thing to get right that I I almost couldn't help myself from pushing it probably harder than I, than I should have. But on the other hand, I, you know, I'm I'm kind of like Michelangelo. You know, I look up at the Sistine Chapel, I mean, and and say, you know what? Yeah, I was on my back a lot and my arm ached and paint fell in my face. But look at the result. You know, it, it worked out pretty well. So I'm very proud of my daughter and, and how she's adapted to these things. So I guess I look back over it and I, I say, you know, it worked. For all the stumbles and, and mistakes I made, you know, I've got a Sistine Chapel of a kid. When uh, I, when my spouse and I had Carol, when we started our family, we'd been in the Navy for 10 years and we had been trained a certain way. And the way that we were accustomed to learning was to do some studying in the books and talk with some people and get some basic understanding. But at some point you would be out there in the ocean and somebody would let you drive your submarine and all they would do would step in once in a while to keep you from actually hurting yourself. But you had a very big sandbox to play in. At first it was kind of scary. Do they really know what they're letting me do here? But you became more and more confident with that sort of knowledge and that style of training. In addition to the basics that you already learned, you got the experience very quickly and so by the time we had Carol and started to see a similarity between training ensigns and lieutenants in the Navy and teaching a four-year-old about money, we were comfortable with giving her a great big sandbox of money to play in. And again, she would learn from the experience. She'd make some mistakes, but she wouldn't actually hurt too many people too badly in the process. Carol, you're in the midst of child rearing. I mean, it brings up a question. Do you think everyone can be taught to be financially competent? Because we, we're assuming here that they can, but is that true? Yes, everybody can be taught, but no, not everybody can be taught the exact same way. Anybody that's raising more than one kid or anybody that has a sibling can tell you probably with a little bit of mirthless laughter, yes, you cannot <laughs> teach the same two people the exact same uh, method. Two different people are going to want two different methods. And I, I think that was the most frustrating thing about watching and learning other means of of being educated was the the insistence on doing the exact same thing for the exact same person every single time when someone would respond better to hearing something, someone would respond better to an actual experiment, someone would respond better to watching a video, someone would respond better to just giving them a book in a quiet corner. It, it really depends on the person. And that that's one of the things we tried to emphasize in the book was to not do to sit down at the kitchen table with a notebook and expect your kids to take in every single gospel truth that you were saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, it really came down to some kids are going to prefer that you just hand them an article. It's only five minutes. They can go off and they can read on their own time. Other kids are going to love the TikTok channels, the YouTube videos that you send their way, and they'll peruse it on their own time. 
And you'll still get the classic bookworms that if you give them a library, they'll read through it on their own. But not every kid is going to use every single method the exact same way. I have to admit that teaching Carol about money, managing her money and about saving and investing for financial independence got a lot easier after YouTube was up and running and had a a big, rich body of content. Jessica, as I'm listening to this, I'm wondering when it all comes down to it as the adult you are today, any regrets about your financial upbringing? Not at all. I think it's As much as we joke, the skills that I started to learn as a four-year-old at our dining room table, divvying up a dollar and pennies and nickels and dimes, it's still how I lead my life today. And I think it's given me a richer life. I think it's given me the tools to lead the life that I want to live. And to be honest, I couldn't think of another way to do it. It's just how I was raised to look at money and to have this relationship with it. And like any relationships, it's had its ups and downs, but you figure it out and you work through it and you put in the effort for a reason. So no regrets. JL, I'm going to ask you first, but go around to each of the panelists. Is there a single or overwhelming piece of advice we can give the audience about not just teaching our family members, but helping our friends with their finances, et cetera, is there a basic golden rule or something that, that we can stick to that makes it a little easier? You know, I, I, I think the lesson that I come away with is that I'm not very good at this. And I think I, I absolutely agree with what Carol said moments ago in that everybody needs a different approach. But I, I, I for the longest time, I didn't understand that. And to give you a great example, when it was shortly after The Simple Path to Wealth was published, it was suggested I do an audible version. And my reaction to that was, why? I mean, that's just going to cannibalize readers from the print and ebook version and understand that I'm a reader. Words matter to me. I like, I like to read printed stuff. And somebody had to hold me by the hand and say, well, no, not everybody learns that way. There are people who would prefer to listen to this. And obviously I was persuaded and it, it was so true in a way that I really didn't fundamentally understand. So I think I'm very fortunate that Jessica evidently was receptive to the way that I taught it, at least ultimately. But I, I'm not sure I'm a great one to give advice on how to do it on a broader front. That, that's why, as I say, I don't try to persuade anybody the information I put it out there. And for those who, for whom it resonates, I think that's wonderful, but I find it very difficult to try to persuade people for whom it doesn't. Doug, an overriding piece of advice for someone trying to help someone else with their finances, whether it be a child, family member, friend. Again, sympathy and empathy will go a long way. Seek to understand what they're dealing with and what they know, and don't immediately go into problem-solving mode. As as a guy, as a uh, nuclear-trained Navy submariner, that is my immediate reaction, and it's taken an entire lifetime to overcome that, to be able to sit back and and let them talk and share the, the feelings and, and maybe not even come up with a solution until they finally start asking me the questions. I would, I would rather answer questions that someone else asks me rather than immediately start advising them on what they should do. Amen. 
Carol, you're a newish mom. Talk about what you think will be some of the overriding things that you're going to keep in mind while teaching your child about money. Definitely her emotions and her desires. I'm noticing right now that at two years old, my daughter loves bracelets. That as a mom, you don't go in thinking my kid is going to love bracelets one day, but here we are. And she absolutely loves bracelets. And so I know that when it comes to money, that's going to be one of the first topics I broach. It's going to be, well, mom, I really like this. Can we get this? It's like, well, yes, you can with your money. And so it's like, well, how do I get my money? And and we're off, ladies and gentlemen. Once you once you find that motivator, it's all uphill from there. And Jessica, I saw you at the Economy Conference, which is definitely a financial conference. So people may recognize you as a Collins and ask for advice. Is there any key piece of advice you may give give them? Can I cheat and have two? Sure. Okay. So first is focus on getting that debt paid down. That's the number one thing. And that's probably top of mind for me, just with my age and types of conversations I'm having with my peer group. Second, this is something my dad told me my whole life, but it really stuck with me when I was a teenager is when you choose to not spend money on a thing or on something frivolous or that doesn't necessarily bring joy into your life, it's not just getting pushed away into some dusty cell to not be used. Like you're choosing to use that money to buy your freedom. So any choice you make to not put it towards something, but to put it towards investment or to something else, you are buying your freedom. So I'd like to thank you guys for coming on the show today. I think there's some really important points. And the one that sticks with me is we like to poke fun at JL and say he had a harder time and that and that Doug did things right. But what we really see here <laughs> is two very successful parents who've had very successful children who are financially grown up and know what they're doing and are ready to face the world. As you all said, there are lots of different ways to do it right. And I wanted to have two examples on the show today that show two very different and yet successful ways together. I want to end the show the way I end every show by asking you all what is up next in your life. And if people want to learn more, where can they find you? Carol, let's start with you. What is going on in your life and how can people get in touch with you if they want to? I am in full toddler raising mode, so I am not very good at anything other than checking my email and checking Facebook. So really the best place to find me is to look on Facebook. And Doug, what is going on in your life and where can people find you? Well, what's up next for me is a military money conference in Cary, North Carolina in April. And I'm going to be giving a presentation with my daughter. And uh, this will be the first time in our lives that we've shared a stage together for a formal presentation. I have no idea how it's going to work out. Hopefully she'll be able to carry me through the hard parts. <laughs> you can find me on Facebook. Uh, you can also just look me up online. Uh, searching for my name, Doug Nordman, will get you in touch with me. The easiest way is on Facebook. And Jessica, this may be the first time you've shared the stage with your father here on the Earn and Invest podcast. Uh, what is going on in your life? And if you want people to find you, how can they? <laughs> yeah. What's going on in my life? I mean, 2022 is a lot of exciting things coming up. I think more on the personal end, there's a move coming up in my future, which I'm really excited about. Hopefully we're getting into a new sense of normalcy. Fingers crossed that I didn't just jinx that for everyone. So just <laughs> really kind of seeing where life takes me for this next year. And if you're interested in connecting, 
best place to find me getting on this train. You can find me on Facebook, also LinkedIn. And JL, last but definitely not least, what is up next in your life and where can we find you if we want to learn more? So you can find me at jlcollinsnh.com. That's the blog. And from there, you can, if you choose, you can connect on Facebook and Twitter. You know, we are still living uh, our nomadic life. Uh, We're kind of searching for a place we might settle down for, for the next chapter of that life. In terms of the FI community, uh, we have a Chautauqua coming up after two years of being off because of COVID. We are honored to have Doc G as one of the speakers in one of those weeks. And my daughter, Jessica, is also going to be at one of those weeks. And she, too, will be giving a little talk about what an awful father I've been. (laughs) And everybody looks forward to that. I know she's done it the past Chautauquas, and it's always a big draw. So we are thrilled to be going back to Chautauqua and uh, in Columbia this year. Unfortunately, it's sold out, um, sold out in 18 hours, actually. But so that's, that's what the rest of this year looks like. That is it sold out despite the speaker for the first week, but we'll... <laughs> oh, because of, because of. All right. Well, this has been the Earn and Invest podcast. And I have myself, Doc G. I'd like to thank Jail and Jessica Collins, Doug Nordman and Carol Pittner. That's a wrap. Awesome. All right. That was a lot of fun. Thank you guys for doing that. Fun. That was fun. Thank you for hosting. That was super fun. I I love your guys' stories and I love them together because, again, I think they're different looks at at how we teach people. And um, yeah. I just want to see what goes on the blooper reel. (laughs) Yeah. We'll have to meet up and uh, swap stories over. Absolutely. How was your childhood? I was about to say, relive traumas probably, right? Yeah, right. (laughs) We get a therapy session. Yeah, I suggest we meet up in Hawaii where Doug is. Yeah, I was going to say, you you guys should meet up and do that because JL and I have already gotten through that stage together and we've agreed that it's probably probably worth having kids after all. (laughs) That's good. Well, I agree. You know, Doc, I agree with you. This was a this was a great pairing. I uh, mm-hmm. when you suggested and said that Carol and Doug were going to be part of it, I thought, wow, that's that's going to be a lot of fun. So, and it was. Yeah, I, and, and I do. I like I like the fact that your stories are very different, but the endpoints aren't. Yeah, um, and that's yeah. what I think is very cool. Um, because it, it gives I think it gives me a lot of hope that that it, and I believe this in, in a lot of life is life is mostly about intentions. And so what I see is parents who had incredibly good intentions. And I think if you, you know, the details sometimes aren't nearly as important as the intentions. And I think that's as a a parent with growing children, I certainly have made lots and lots of mistakes, but usually my intentions were well, were good. Very well said. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, you know, I've come to the conclusion that, that, uh, when it, when it comes to having kids, a lot of it is luck of the draw. And I think both Doug and I got very lucky with the, with the children that we had. And I, I think that, you know, sometimes there are just bad kids, difficult kids. And, and uh, I'm not sure I would have been able to be an effective parent had that, had that been the case. I, I guess I've kind of come to the conclusion that 
there's not a lot a parent can do to turn a kid around. There's a lot a parent can do to mess a kid up. But people compliment us all the time about our daughter, and we're gratified by that. But I say mostly we just stayed out of the way and let her blossom, and and we didn't mess her up. Yeah, the, the you know the thing we didn't mention is you also both happened to marry the right women. <laughs> oh, we definitely married up. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. I think that I think that made a lot of probably same as me made a, up for a lot of our shortcomings. <laughs> that makes that makes a big difference, and especially with the financial thing where I had Jane always there to tell me it's going to be okay. She's 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 picking up more than you realize. As a longtime foreign correspondent. I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch wherever you get your podcasts.